Good morning. So today we are here at the Austin Zen Center. We are doing a compassion retreat. What is that? What is a compassion retreat? What is compassion? It said that uh, compassion is a natural, uh, a natural feeling that comes up in the face of suffering. What do you think about that in terms of a definition of compassion? Not definition, but a description. It's a good start. It's a good start. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a good start. There's a lot of kind of feelings that could come up that yeah. aren't necessarily compassionate in the face of suffering. Right, so it's not a necessary feeling that comes up in the face of suffering. What are some other things that come up in the face of suffering? Fear. Fear. Disgust. Disgust. Pain. Anger. Anger. Pain. Struggle. Struggle. Pity. Pity. Empathy. Empathy. And compassion. What happens when you uh, when you see suffering, either in uh, in something else, somebody else, someone else, some being, or within <coughs> oneself, you notice some suffering there. If compassion is something that can arise naturally as an appropriate response to suffering. I just snuck that word in there. Hmm. An appropriate response to suffering as opposed to maybe an inappropriate response. Again, what's, in a, what's in a, you know, an inappropriate response? We've said a bunch of different things that could come up in the face of suffering. I don't know if I'm willing to say that any of those are inappropriate. Pleasure? Pleasure. Hell around beings, yeah. <coughs> Resentment. Resentment. I have to deal with it. Mm. Now, we, you know, I just, I just threw that word out there, but then I actually wanted to take it back, the inappropriate <laughs> word. <laughs> because I'm thinking that um, who's to say, or what's to say, whether something that is, comes up as a response is necessarily inappropriate. Do we have control over what comes up so much? Do we have much control over uh, a thought that comes up or a feeling? Not really, right? If we really study the mind when we sit in silence and, um, and keep coming back to the present moment, right, while being holding a space for things to come and go, right, holding a space for things as they are, to come and go. Right. What comes up during that period of holding space may not be under our control. We can say that we don't like certain things, resentment, ooh, who wants resentment to come up? Who wants hatred to come up? Right? Compassion is so much nicer <laughs> when compassion is a natural response to suffering. <clears throat> And yet when we say appropriate, um, appropriate to what? 
appropriate to being a deluded human being, stuck in the realm of samsara, the wheel of suffering? Is it appropriate to have resentment? Is it appropriate to have anger? Is it appropriate to have pity? Bruce, you're looking perplexed. <laughs> you cut my furrow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I just don't know. You know, we hear the word skillful a lot, or helpful, and I, I think that if, if appropriate seems to judge whatever has already come up, like, what's the point of that? It, it seems like it would be more mm. helpful to focus on what do I do with this thing that's right. already come up. Okay, I'm resenting has come up, aversion or yeah. fear, pity, whatever. So now what? So now what? Yeah, thank you. So in terms of deciding whether or not the response that has arisen is appropriate or not, yeah, let's, let's turn our it's attention. It's not appropriate. Yeah, it's not appropriate. <laughs> Turning our attention to what's an appropriate response to suffering? What's an appropriate response to pain? When I use the word appropriate, um, I think appropriate for being a practitioner, appropriate for someone who's taken vows to wake up for the benefit of all beings. Right. When I say appropriate, that's kind of what I mean. And so I wanted to pause and just confess that, <laughs> that I have that as part of when I say appropriate, I mean appropriate to this path of compassion, of wisdom, of interconnection, and harmony with all beings. All beings. Right. Being in harmony with all beings does not mean that you let all beings run roughshod over you. Okay, just to say that. Um, it means developing wisdom and discernment to see which way to go. Right? If you noticed in our uh, liturgy, what we chanted this morning, and we chant every Saturday morning, we have three chants, and one of them, the first one, is the hymn to the perfection of wisdom, which is an homage to Prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom. And then the second chant is the Shosanyo Kichijo Dharani, which is a chanting for the removal of any hindrances. Any obstacles in our way of our uh, endeavor to walk a path of morality, concentration, and wisdom. Concentration or samadhi and wisdom. Right? Any obstacles that get, get in the way of walking a path that we want to walk. It's the path we want to walk. Right? And then the third chant that we did was the loving-kindness meditation which is an aspiration, it's a wish. Who's it a wish for? All beings. All beings. Is anyone not worthy of receiving compassion or loving kindness? Is anyone not worthy of it? What about, you know, that guy out there who does X, Y, Z, are they worthy of compassion that we disapprove of? Not really. <laughs> Charles, sticking your neck out. <laughs> you must know who you're talking about. 
What? He must know. That guy. Uh, are you are you gonna stand by that, John? No, <laughs> but but really, like when we think about it in our lives, as we're walking along in our lives, as we're flipping through different, you know, news stations or seeing the papers, reading articles about the state of the world, how often is compassion our natural response? Even when we're faced with um, poverty. For example, we're walking around in Austin, we're driving, maybe we're driving somewhere, we're parked at a street light, not parked, but stopped at a, a stoplight, and there's uh, expressions of poverty instantiated in particular human beings who are asking for support. Is compassion something that comes naturally? Some of you are nodding, some of you are shaking your head. Some of you are looking perplexed. What stands in the way of compassion arising naturally? Fear. Fear. Conditioning. Conditioning. Identifying the delusion in the object of compassion. Identifying the object of non-compassion with their delusion. We identify the person with that person's delusion. Oh, okay, so maybe you, you can take something, say somebody's out there doing horrible things, <laughs> and you're saying that that is a delusion. Yes, they're, usually they're operating out of delusion. Operating out of delusion. You identify the person with the delusion. Yeah, I see, yes. That's right. Thank you. But right. at the same time, it's important not to discriminate too much between the person and the way that they act in the world. It's important not to distinguish. Yeah, I mean, there's like too there's much. A, yeah, there's a sense of. Um, I mean, I, I, I agree with this about about someone acting out of delusion and being compassionate, right? And at the same time, um, pe people are not separate from their their actions simply because they're deluded. Yeah. Right. So still having accountability, mm -hmm. responsibility in a way that is compassionate. Right. How many of you have children or have access to children? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so with kids, kids, it's, it can be really clear sometimes, right? When you're dealing with a very young child who may have some delusion, right? And they get really bent out of shape over something, right? And they may even act out, right? They refer things. And you may have to say, no, 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 don't do that. You can't do that. Right? You may even get angry or yell at them. Right? There's a world of difference between doing that as a you're bad or you're uh, a terrible person versus this is, you know, I don't want to say this, this is not so, this is for your benefit, this is for your own good. <laughs> not like that. But in terms of the, the attitude of care, right? It's like, oh, no, 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 you don't want to do that because that will lead to things that you don't, you won't want, right? Negative consequences, right? So stepping in and um, in the case of a child, especially when they're a child under your care, you have a responsibility, right? Whereas... Normally, we don't think of ourselves as having responsibility for other people's actions out in the world, right? 
And so maybe that's part of what leads to the divide, right, of not feeling compassionate. It's hard not to, it's, I don't want to say it's hard not to feel compassionate, but when you have somebody, like a child, um, it's easier to feel compassion for a child's actions, even if they're coming from delusion. How many actions come from delusion? What does it mean for an action to come from delusion? Let me just go back and take a step back and just look at the, the question of delusion. Because I heard fear. I heard delusion. Another obstacle to compassion, to feeling compassion, or allowing compassion to arise naturally. One's own suffering. One's own suffering, right? Aversion. Wanting to get away. Right? Delusion could be also be called ignorance. Ignorance. Um, it's also described that way. Well, what is when we use the word ignorance or delusion in a Buddhist context? It means something very particular, right? It doesn't mean that you don't know some factual matters, right? What is what is ignorance uh, or delusion? Actually, just let's stay, stick with delusion for now. What is delusion in a Buddhist context? Being separate. Being separate? Thinking separate. Thinking feeling, separate. Thinking feeling that you're separate. separate. Yeah. Having a belief, actually, even. A strong belief that, no, I'm separate from you. I am uh, a self-contained individual with my own um, substance from my own side that's not really, that is somehow independent of you. Or you, or you, or you. Right. So in Buddhism, ignorance has to do with being ignorant about the true nature of our, our true nature. The idea that we are separate, that somehow um, we're not connected. The separation is this feeling of like, oh, I'm not connected to you. Right? It could be internally delusion, there could be an internal delusion, right? And having nothing to do with self or other, you could feel disconnected from your own experience. That's another form of delusion, right? And I would say that when working with one's own suffering, it's probably more common than not for people to back away from experiencing their own suffering, right? Then, rather than uh, going closer towards it, right? You know the story. You know the the description of. Um, I heard this the other day. That a telephone pole. Somebody who puts in telephone poles, right? And when you put them in the ground, they're very unstable, right? You got this telephone pole, and you're putting it into the ground. And for the people who are placing the telephone pole in its the hole in the ground, they have to be very careful because it's very heavy, it's very tall, very unstable, and it could fall, mm -hmm. right? And what do you do when the telephone pole starts to fall? Do you run away from it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> you run towards it. Because if you run towards it and get as close as you can, you're nimble. You can move around it. Right? It's going to fall this way. It's going to fall that way. If you just start running, <laughs> where is it going to go? The same thing happens to be true for suffering. In particular, our own suffering, which I would... Uh, say, um, most of us don't want to look at, right? 
We don't want to look at, we don't want to suffer, number one. Of course, we don't want to suffer. But even when we, when we are suffering, what do we do with that suffering? What do we do in response to our own suffering, usually? Run. <laughs> we run, right? <laughs> what, we, what do we run to? Or wait, what do we run into? My head. You go into your head? Anyone else? Distraction. Distraction? Other people's suffering. Ooh, other people. How can I help other people? Yeah. Cause it. How? Ca or, or cause, it. Cause, cause other people's suffering. Cause other people's suffering. With our own suffering, um, when we what what comes up when we face our own suffering? When do we face our own suffering? Usually, I think. A lot of times, people don't face their own suffering until they absolutely have to. Because if you can get by without facing it, why not? Yes, Catherine? Sometimes you, you're so miserable that you just have to do something. Sometimes you're, you're, it's totally steeped in it. Yes. And then you have to do something. Yeah. Like what? Yeah. Um, well, sometimes what happens is that you, you just kind of break open and it's... you, you <laughs> You feel compassion for others. You feel so awful, and then something kind of, your heart kind of breaks open. With you your own it. suffering. Yeah, with your own. So your heart kind of breaks open. Yeah. It's like a release. Yeah. Yeah. Mary. Um, I think sometimes it becomes clear you, there's no way around it, and you have to go through it. And usually, it usually helps to do that with the help of someone. So being able to trust and allow somebody to help you through it, or yourself through it, if you're mm. able, if that's internalized. I mean. If it's internalized to... To nurture yourself through it. Right. But I think the first time <coughs> you're really overwhelmed by it, if you're lucky, and you have enough basic trust, you can reach out to somebody else to help you go through it. Okay. There's a lot there. Yeah, <laughs> it is a big if, if you're lucky. And if you're lucky and if you have trust. And you have trust. Yeah. Yeah, because being able to turn towards your suffering, it's not easy. It's not easy. I was joking around about this, this compassion retreat. Uh, when announcing the compassion retreat, it's like, yeah, it sounds like it's going to be nice and warm and fuzzy. But it might not be. It might be very difficult. It might be very difficult to, um, like we do in zazen. In zazen, it's non. Um, it's when when we sit in zazen, we create the conditions to open our awareness to whatever it is that's happening. Right? We have places like this that have a zen a zendo where there are cushions laid out just for us <laughs> to come in and a little wall space for just for us to sit and, and look at the wall. Not, not looking at the wall, but just to have a blank screen. That's not glowing. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah, maybe sometimes it is glowing. Yeah, right. Depends on how, how deep your samadhi is. <laughs> but we create the conditions for opening up, like this is a safe space. There's my, I've got my zabaton, right? 
I mean, in terms of safety, there's, it's safe enough for us to sit. Okay, there's no, um, for now at least, there's nobody bombing the building, right? We have a general level of safety. There are people around us who we assume are um, here for similar reasons that we are, to take a look, right? To try, uh, try, try to cultivate presence. So we have our space here that's designed for us to open our awareness. It's very hard to meditate when you're super busy, super stressed out, and being reactive as opposed to responsive, right? And oftentimes when life gets busy, the first thing that goes is all the things that we do to take care of ourselves. Our meditation, our exercise routines, our journal time, our just alone, being alone in nature. Those are things like, I don't have time for that, right? And I have to get through whatever I'm, uh, you know, this, this challenge that I'm facing. And that seems to be the first response to being in any kind of challenge, right? Is to um, manage, to manage the challenge. Sadly, the first thing that goes is the uh, creating that, the conditions or the space to be with the challenges, to be with, to feel our uh, anxiety, our busyness, our maybe even desperation, right? So compassion, whether it's a, a direct and natural response to uh, suffering, can be very elusive because when we're in a fear-based state or when our, we're triggered or um, hijacked emotionally by fear, it becomes very hard to open one's heart, right? So you could say, like, when is a fear an appropriate response? Is fear ever an appropriate response? Yes. Yeah. Right? Saber-toothed tiger's about to t attack you, chasing through the... <laughs> what? It'd be really weird if a saber-toothed tiger was about to attack. That would be frightening, wouldn't it? <laughs> So, yeah, the fear response is there for a reason, right, to protect us. Unfortunately, the fear response also can, uh, it, you know, it, it, it works for a certain amount of time. How much time is its usefulness? Is fear useful? Till the danger's over. Till the danger's over, right? It's not, you know, you, you, the fear response, if it lingers beyond the danger, then it becomes a total bummer. It's a total <laughs> hindrance. To, to, um, to finding that spaciousness, right? So in animals, how many of you know about what animals do when they're in uh, trauma as a response to trauma or fear? So an animal, let's say, is chased by something and it manages to escape. What does it do with all that fear pent up? We don't do that so often. We don't process that, uh, the, whatever the, the fear is. Right? And oftentimes, the fear becomes part of the background and, uh, and calcifies. And the feeling of fear, I don't know where you feel fear. You can feel fear anywhere in your body, right? In your hands, in your face, 
right? And your muscles that are twitchy, your fast twitch muscles are starting to like, you know, should I run? Should I, should I fight? Should I, maybe I'll just freeze? Danger will go away, right? So physically, there's all kinds of cascades of reactions happening in our bodies, in our brains, in response to uh, a challenging situation, right? It's our fear response. Once the fear, once the danger is over, and it could be an imagined danger, right? It might not even be an actual danger, but still a fear response. And the cascade of uh, chemicals that happens in response to fear, stress hormones, they're still there. They're circulating, right? So what happens when we're, we know the danger's over? That the, uh, the thing that we thought was a snake was actually a rope, for example. What do we normally do? We just kind of go on, right? We don't really do the shaking so much. Yeah. Or we dwell on it and obsess and, and just relive it. There's that too. Yeah, right? We do that. <laughs> With uh, coming back to Zazen, coming back to open awareness, we might start to see some of the things that we do. We might start to see, oh, I'm still carrying this feeling in my chest of like, you know, fear, fear, sense of gripping, maybe, right? And then we can say, why am I carrying this? I don't necessarily, I don't need to carry this. I can come back to uh, just feeling my feelings, not, res not uh, believing that they're true or that they are everlasting, right? But just noticing that that's what's happening. Oh, I'm feeling gripped. Oftentimes, just bringing our awareness is enough to dissipate the grip, right? Something lingering. Yeah, Mary. So, so that's the, the people get entangled in it. But for other people... And identified with it. And identified yeah. with it and with and stuff. But then there are people who move away and put it in a box or... Stuff it. Stuff it it's another response, yeah. Post it on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's another response. And that maybe is just like a call for empathy. Or you know, I don't know, who knows? Who knows what's going on with Facebook? <laughs> one one thing that hasn't been said is sometimes we we see somebody's behavior and we think we know their intent. And so sometimes there we conflate intent with behavior. Yes. Yeah. And that leads to creating a story about them, which makes causes can cause more separation. Right? I mean you can go to go, you know, both ways with this. You can attribute malicious intent where there is none. Or you can attribute that someone's suffering worse than they are because we have our ideas about them and their circumstances, right? All kinds of things. We can do that in all kinds of ways. We do. And that's one of the things that our brains are, you know, very good at doing is creating stories and then believing them, right? Which is fine. We don't need to stop creating stories and, and, uh, and believing them. We just have to believe them very um, lightly, yes. We're not. It's not. We're, we're not going to stop creating stories and then believing them. So going back to these 
those things that are in the way of compassion, that stand in the way of our the natural response. When I say natural response, again, or appropriate response to suffering is compassion. What I mean is something that is, if you're on the path of practice where you are um, not bogged down by the weight of your own self-concern. So in a state where there's not fear, in a state of general ease, okay, a state of okayness even, if you're in a state of okayness, then maybe the natural response will be compassion. If you're in a state of fear and uh, loathing, compassion is not going to come naturally, right? In terms of your willingness to be with someone else's suffering, to acknowledge it, again, we're not even going to get into like what do we do with suffering, right? Other than be with. So compassion being with suffering, not trying to solve it necessarily, not trying to fix it, not trying to, not becoming uh, overwhelmed by it. So one distinction that was uh, brought up, the, the topic of empathy. What's the difference between empathy and compassion? Empathy is feeling the other person's feelings. Mm -hmm. Compassion is a step further, which is wanting and actively wanting to take away the suffering, either yourself or someone else. An active wanting to take away, or an active wish for the uh, ending of suffering. the ending of suffering, right? To have a, a wish. Uh, yeah, the problem with that is empathy. If it's you can have your own delusion about what that person's suffering is, yeah. that you bring into the equation. So you're writing a story. Yeah. Empathy isn't necessarily directed at what the issue is. Oh, sometimes it's really, really awful, too. It's really noticeable where, you know, you come home from work and you're like, I need to relax. And you find that your, you know, your roommates, your partner is working. And you're like, God, you're working so hard. I feel so sorry for you. Why are you stop, stop working? I want to help you or something, you know? And it's like, what is it about? What is the, uh, you know, the feeling of, concern for somebody is it concern for their well-being or is it concern for your own well-being right so there's fine lines and to be able to again coming back to zazen which is an open awareness to whatever is happening that being a foundation for then going into specific practices around compassion or loving kindness not to say that you need to do zazen before you can do loving kindness i'm not saying that at all but that the spaciousness of zazen itself is a field for wisdom and compassion to arise. Okay? But noticing whether you have a story. Right? That's what we do when we sit zazen. Because when we're sitting facing a blank wall with nothing but our own, you know, self-composure and beingness, and something comes up and we get all riled up... <laughs> which we do, <laughs> you know, what's the cause of it? It's, uh, it's we're generating it ourselves, right? So being able to have that foundation to then uh, step into what is an appropriate response to suffering. 
Am I able to be with suffering? Am I able to have a, a response that's going a little bit further, as Rich said, from being, uh, from feeling the suffering of empathy, right? When I empathize, I can feel someone else's suffering. That can be exhausting to feel someone else's suffering by itself. Compassion goes a little bit further. It's a generation of a wish for well-being. The wish for well-being for this suffering being. Right? It's active. It's not, a, it's not necessarily... I mean, it could, come, it could arise naturally without, um, without any effort. Right? Imagine that you are walking along the street and you see a baby bird that has fallen out of the nest and it's on the ground squeaking, chirping. Right? You might feel a natural welling up of compassion. Oh, poor bird. Let me, you know, maybe I can put you back in your net. Of course, that's never a good idea. But you know, the feeling, the wish of like, I want to be helpful. How can I help? That's compassion. And it's active. Empathy uh, can be a feeling of suffering with, right? But without the activity of how can I help? How can I be of benefit? even if all I can do is be with you in your suffering, which is oftentimes the most magical, amazing thing to have, is someone who's with you. Right? We're all going to die. We are all vulnerable. Life is precarious. Right? Something could happen at any moment that we don't want to have happen. Are we willing to be, are we able to be with that vulnerability? If we aren't, if we're always turning away, turning away because we can, at some point, if we're lucky, we won't be able to turn away. And then we'll get to see how compassion arises naturally through uh, not being able to turn away, not being able to distract, defend, or um, demand that things be different. Right? This is the greed, hate, and delusion. Greed is like, I'm going to demand that things are the way I want them to be. Like, to say, no, what's happening is not happening. It's a response right? to be demanding. Uh, it could be a defense, defending. Like aversion, from aversion or hatred. And it could be uh, distracting, delusion. There's a famous case of, uh, how many of you have heard of the Tibetan monk, uh, Mathieu Ricard? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so he's the most, he's got the most studied meditating brain now, I think. He's subjecting himself to many, many scans while meditating and doing different kinds of meditations. And one thing I want to uh, end with is the description of Matthew when doing the difference between empathy and compassion when, uh, while receiving the uh, MRI, what's happening in his brain. turns out that he was given uh, photographs to look at, or maybe it was a documentary that he was watching. It was a documentary on these orphanages in Poland where the children in the orphanages were not given any care. They were given food and shelter, medicines, 
but no care, none. And they were getting sicker and sicker. And so he's watching this documentary and he's in the, you know, he's having his brain scanned as he's watching and he's asked to do, you know, to feel empathy first. Feel empathy for the, for the suffering that you see in this documentary. And this was very challenging for him, very trying. Okay, you can imagine. And then he was asked to feel, to shift from feeling empathy to feeling compassion. And so he did. And then he did that for a while, and then he was given the option to either just go to, to, uh, to not go forward with feeling, uh, practicing his meditation on compassion, but to do kind of an open awareness meditation instead. Right, with the stimuli, the, the uh, documentary no longer showing. Now, what he found was that when he was practicing empathy, the suffering with, it was exhausting. It was exhausting and he felt really bad, right? depleting of his own internal resources. However, when he shifted to doing a compassion practice, which is a generation of a wish for well-being, an active generating of a wish. May you be well. May you be at peace. May you be free from suffering. That that had a completely different effect and different pathways in his brain lit up when he did the difference, uh, the uh, compassion meditation versus an empathy meditation. Less depletion, such that when he was given the option to stop altogether and do uh, open awareness meditation rather than continuing the compassion meditation, he chose to continue the compassion meditation. So you've heard of compassion fatigue. It's more like empathy fatigue mm -hmm. than compassion fatigue. I have a close friend who's in chaplaincy training right now, and talking to her as she goes through her chaplaincy work <coughs> has been really fascinating because she's been uh, she's a trauma uh, chaplain, trauma care <coughs> chaplain. So we're talking. This is the person who goes into the family when they've, you know, had a horrible accident. Their youngest son is uh, in a coma, or he's been horribly disfigured, or has lost their, you know, a limb or something. Right? This is significant suffering, and she's being trained in this program that she's in. She's been in several programs. This is a another program she's in, particularly for being a hospital chaplain for trauma for the trauma ward. Right? So. This is bodhisattva practice, right? You, know, you all know the, uh, the picture of the wheel of life, the Tibetan picture of the wheel of life with Mara holding on a wheel, this whole wheel in the center, you have greed, hate, and delusion, the peak, the, uh, the rooster, the serpent, and the pig chasing each other, right? This is what spins the wheel, it keeps the wheel turning, the wheel of samsara, and then as radiating out from that, you have the uh, six realms, of existence, which I've heard uh, the, the hell realm is one realm, the lowest realm is the hell realm, there's the animal realm, the realm of reactivity, the human realm, the god realm, the fighting god realm, <laughs> the jealous <laughs> god realm, the titan realm, and then the hungry ghost realm, the hungry ghosts being like nothing is ever going to satiate them, right? These six realms each of these six realms, if you look very closely in the painting, has a figure who's there to be with the suffering. 
of Bodhisattva, right? willing to go even into the hell realm, willing to go even into a hungry ghost realm. God realm, you know, there's not much, actually, there's not much you can do for gods, <laughs> turns out. Gods, you know, they need to just wait until their godliness runs out, because it will. And then, uh, and then they, they fall into the hell realm, because they're like, oh, I'm no longer a god. Now I'm, like, suffering. And then you can do something. Once, once the suffering is there, then you have something to, to work with. But a god realm, you know, not so, not, not so much you can do for gods, turns out. <laughs> Other than wait. So I wanted to end with that uh, description of the difference between empathy and compassion, because compassion, um, as those of you who are doing the retreat will find, what it comes from, where it comes from, is the feeling of non-separation. What is the f- this feeling of non-separation? It's a feeling of, you are not different from me. I'm not different from you. Yes. Um. One thing I think is helpful to remember or to think about is the, the most religions have the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have it done to you. So that sense of like, I wouldn't do that thing to you that I wouldn't want done to me, right? So it's like the, the idea of no separation sort of extends, is implicit in the golden rule. Hmm. And it sort of extends through all religions, I think. But, and, but we, we in Zen look at it from an emptiness perspective, right? So that there's no... No, I think so. I think what you're saying is that there's... That the golden rule, the way the golden rule is enacted in Buddhism, in Zen Buddhism in particular, because that's what we're speaking yeah. from, is through non-separation. Right. And you are not different from me. Yes. Well, you can do unto others because there aren't others. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And yet there are conventionally. <laughs> well, conventionally. We don't we don't negate the conventional realm. Right. Right. Now, and I didn't mean it as an absolute yeah. um, metaphor that's worked for me in kind of wrapping my brain around this is that if you stub your toe, you're not like, oh, poor toe. <laughs> I, maybe I should. Oh no, I don't want to help you. I, I'm too busy. You know. Or, or, <laughs> Or I can, you know, you just, there's pain and you deal with the pain because it is very visibly a part of you. Right. Mm-hmm. right. If you cut your connected finger you. or something, you just, you take care of it. Yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, the Buddha referred to himself as a physician, right? And so a lot of, a lot of what this uh, discussion has been about is having, um, you know, not necessarily a cult clinical detachment, right? But enough distance and enough space, right? That, that one can attend to what's actually needed as opposed to um, becoming completely enme- enmeshed or right. pulled into the, the chaos or the pain or the, or the suffering. Right. There's right. something of a physician's dis- disposition to Right. And then also translating that into oneself, right, to starting with oneself. If I can't be with my own suffering, fat lot of good I'm going to do for other people's suffering. Mm-hmm. Isn't that where mindfulness comes in? Like you have to practice mindfulness of your own right. thoughts and feelings and emotions and consciousness before you can be aware of 
that the thoughts and feelings right. are. Right. I mean, oftentimes we don't even know we're suffering. You have to be aware of it. You have to be aware of it. And pay attention enough to, be, to see it. Right. Mary, last last comment. Oh, I was just thinking the, the distinction of empathy being healing with is when that distinction between self and others getting blurred and then meshed. But feeling for is where you have the universal connection and reciprocity and relationship, but you're really clear about who's who. Right. <laughs> there's there's a significant attunement that's happening, yeah. but there's also a partition. There's a there's a, uh, and, and there's uh, a opening. You're being held by the crown of being by the where you are aware of being intuitively connected by something larger than yourself. Right. And that you know the, the one bright jewel isn't that that there's a sense of intuitively just being in it, not even aware of it, but you're in it. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Right. And, you, and that is when you're really present with someone and yourself. There's a, you're reminding me, there's this um, Billy Collins poem, which I don't have with me, but the, the, there's a description in it of the soap dish. Does anyone remember, the, familiar with this poem? He's talking about the, the love that he feels for the soap. Like he's looking at the soap dish, the soap sitting in the dish, and it's just, just so, it's like this feeling of gratitude that this soap is there for him to like feel and lather up his hands to clean them. I don't remember the name of this poem, but for some reason, this feeling, this is, um, number one, you need mindfulness, you need to be aware and present to be able to even notice what's going on in our crazy, chaotic, complex inner world, right? So some stability some stabilizing awareness of this moment, this body, right? And then, in order for compassion, like the source of compassion is this love, right? This love of, it could be for soap, for the soap that's sitting in your soap dish at home, right? The generation of feeling of friendliness, Maitri, friendliness, towards oneself. How many of you think of yourselves as being pretty friendly to yourself? Yeah. Now, unfortunately, most people do have a fair dose of uh, unfriendliness, actually, to themselves, where there's criticism, self-criticism. Uh, the inner critic is a big source of unfriendly vibes right, directed towards oneself. So... In terms of the feeling of friendliness, you all know what it feels like to feel friendly, yeah? Play with that. As you go out from, from, this, uh, from the Zen Center today, and you go out into the world, see, notice where friendliness comes up in your, uh, like be on the lookout for feelings of friendliness. It can be friendliness to inanimate objects. And as if you've been around the Zen Center for any length of time, you'll know that a large part of the practice here has to do with how we treat inanimate objects, actually. Right? We try not to move things with our feet or kick them. We try and use two hands when picking something up. We try and put things in, in their place in terms of like their appropriate space. 
So we, you know, we, when we wash dishes and dry them, there's a sense of we're intimately with, being with this cup, this plate, right? We're giving it our whole attention. It's very respectful. The practice of being with inanimate objects is very respectful and I would say friendly. There's a friendliness. So as you go out, see what it's like to generate friendliness, the feeling of friendliness for things that are easy to be friendly towards. But then notice when that friendliness gets a little shaky and actually feels like it's not there, right? Because who does that hurt? When you feel unfriendly. Everyone, everyone yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 